Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former NFL player and head coach Mike Tice. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a man that's done it all in the National Football League. 15 years as a player, 22 years as an NFL coach, and four of those years as the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Tice. Mike, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure, Brett. I am real excited to join you guys today. I'm really looking forward to it. Great to have you. Uh You and your brother growing up, two years apart. Yep. I have a similar story. Right. I have some brothers, and uh, we played together. We were four years apart, so four, and then my youngest brother's 10 years. So we never, as kids, uh, really there was not that competition because of the age difference. But I saw he coached under you when you were a head coach. What was that like? Well, it was enjoyable to have him around. Uh, You know, he was an excellent football player for the New Orleans Saints for his whole career. He was the third tight end drafted in the 1983 draft, Uh, played for Bum Phillips, played for Jim Moore. Uh, He he just had a tremendous career. And then to be around him and help him develop as a coach and watch him uh, do a great job with the kids, with the athletes, it was was nice. And the the main thing was nice having your, your sibling you know, working in the same building with you. Childhood. Born in New York. Grew up in New York. Little Mike Tice. What were you like as a kid? Were you ever little, first of all? No, I, <laughs> no, I was I was telling, Brett, I was telling the guys that when we took our group picture for my golf event this past Sunday, I told the guys, I'll go where I normally go. I'll go in the back of the back of the picture. So I don't think I've ever been in the front row of a picture, except when I was sitting in a chair as the head coach of the Vikings. <laughs> I was, I've always been the tall guy. I've always been, I've always been skinny until I retired from coaching. And then I gained, I gained a bunch of weight, but uh, yeah, I was always tall and lean, but uh, not very athletic. <laughs> well, well, we have something in common. See, I've never been in the back row and you've never been, <laughs> you've never been in the front row. We're kind of the opposite of the spectrum from a, from a height standpoint. But um, right. was it always football as a kid? No, you know what? It was for my brother. And you talked about that competition. Um, I was a basketball nut. I, I grew up watching the Knicks. I remember, you know, keeping score of every game when Walt, Walt Frazier was playing, Willis Reed. Uh, Dick Barnett, Dave DeBusher, all that whole group, Jerry Lucas comes in. I was a huge, huge Knicks fan, and I wanted to play for the Knicks. And, you know, coming out of high school, I, I had a pretty good high school career in both basketball and football. I was very lucky. But my brother, he was like a stud football player, and I was getting a little bit jealous, you know, that my younger brother was getting, uh, you know, noticed as a really good football player. And and then when I had a chance to go to college to play football and play quarterback at the University of Maryland, I, I did it. Now, I don't know if that was the right move because I never played a down a quarterback in the NFL. I, I played tight end and they moved me to tight end. <laughs> that's that. And that's that's kind of amazing to me. You know, when I was doing my prep work, I saw you're a quarterback at, at uh, Maryland. 
So all through high school, you were quarterback. That was your position. Yeah, all through quarter, uh, high school, I was a quarterback. They couldn't tackle me. I was the biggest guy on the field, six seven, like two twenty two. Uh, high school, I, it was really hard to bring me down. I ran for a lot of touchdowns, uh, and uh, I kept the ball a lot. And uh, and we did some type of an option, you know, with a six foot seven gangly quarterback. But it was enjoyable. I played for George O'Leary, who was uh, an excellent college coach and worked for me in the NFL. He also uh, put the stadium at Central Florida, has a, a statue of, of him outside of the Central Florida football stadium. So I learned a lot from good coaching very early, and it helped me with, you know, being a disciplined athlete and how to prepare, how to study, uh, when to ask the right questions, when to shut the F up. And so uh, it was good. I, I didn't get that last part down, though. Yeah, well, you're good, though. You're good. And and for those of you listening to the Boone podcast right now, uh, we'll get into it a little bit later. Mike's got a foundation and, and he puts on a uh, lot of events, raises a lot of money. And he's he's a, he's an MC. I, you know, when I caught your act last year, I said, wow, he's really good because there's only a certain amount. It's that it's that something factor that you have when you go on stage, but you do a great job. And, and we'll get into that a little bit later. University of Maryland, keeping with the family theme. Uh, your brother not only coached coached with you at the highest level, he, he's tagging along. He played with you at the, the University of, uh, of Maryland, and you know from a from a guy here, I, I played with Aaron one year. We played together in 1998 uh, mm-hmm. for the Cincinnati Reds, and and looking back, I don't have that many memories of it, you know, because it was such a grind, and and uh, I was so worried about playing. Well, he was my third baseman, you know. He might be my brother on an off day when we have lunch, but. But I don't remember, and I didn't really heed that uh, that that opportunity we both had. I think you know you, you look back at things. Ah, I wish I would enjoyed this a little more, that a little more. But it starts with with your brother at Maryland. Was it more of a burden? Oh, here he comes. Now he's on my team in college. No, I, I've been tagging along with him, or was it cool? No, it was really cool. I mean, we were very close. We lived in the same room our whole lives. We didn't have a lot of bedrooms in our house, and one bathroom, and five kids. And, uh, no, we were close, and, and I wanted him to come there. In fact, uh, when, they, when they offered him and then they tried to, you know, change their mind on the scholarship, uh, my father called and said, my son Michael's transferring. And then it was funny how, like, the next day they found that scholarship again for my brother John. You know, and then he turns out to have a much better college career than I had, and he had an excellent NFL career. But like many of us athletes, his career ended by injury. And, uh you know, tore his labrum and, and uh, going into his 10th year. And, and that was that. And uh, it was sudden. And, that, you know, as an athlete, you can, you can relate to this, Brett. When all of a sudden you're playing well and you're respected and, and you're looked upon in the community and the next thing a couple of months later is just over and in over forever, it's hard on you. It's hard mentally to put that away. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um your senior year, you guys go to the Tangerine Bowl against Florida. Your backup's Boomer Esiason. Yeah, Is that true? Boomer, yeah, Boomer Esiason was my backup. So I'll tell you another funny story, and not a funny story, but another guy that was my backup was Frank Reich, who's now the head coach of the Colts. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Those guys were backups, and uh, Boomer was uh, not a highly regarded player coming out of high school. He had a couple opportunities, I think, to go to Boston University, I think, as a pitcher. He was an excellent baseball pitcher boomer was and, and and also an excellent basketball player 
And Boomer chose, you know, he was thinking about going to Boston U. He came down on a, a trip. My dad was there. My brother was there. I was there. And we recruited him really hard. His dad came down. And the next thing you know, Boomer went to Maryland. We were all very, very excited. So your senior year ends. You go undrafted. What is uh, Mike Tice thinking? What's next? And the interesting thing is you end up – fast forward a little bit to that to that first season in the NFL. You end up, you end up playing in every game. As a as a tight end, you've never played tight end before. You know, you see recently in in modern times, Tebow tried that. It didn't work out too good for him just to go from, oh, I've been a quarterback all my life. All right, I'm going to be a tight end and I'm going to play in the NFL as a tight end. And then to have a 15 year career, it seems pretty amazing. But you tell me the story. How did it all come about? And who who was the first guy that said, all right, you come here, you're going to be a tight end. Just tell me that story. Well, back back in 81, when I came out, there were no restrictions on roster size or how many players you could bring to camp. Now everything's limited by number, so it's more equal for people. Uh, the, Se- the Seahawks were basically a new franchise that started in 76. They hadn't had a winning season. They, they really were not that good. Jim Zorn was the quarterback. Steve Largent was there. Sam McCullum, a few guys I'm still dear friends with. And uh, I hurt my shoulder in college uh, going into my uh, junior year, and it never really healed and had some nerve damage in my hand and my elbow. So you know all of that from throwing that baseball. So I, uh, when I went to minicamp, Brett, I, I looked around and assessed the situation and said, if I really want to play pro sports, I cannot play quarterback. I got to try something else. So I went home. Back then they didn't have – an off-season program. So I went home to Central Ice of New York, and I trained the entire summer with my brother as a tight end. And then I went back to camp as a quarterback, and three days in, Jack Proterra called me in and said, son, you have two options. I get your ass out of here Friday, first cut, or you move to tight end. I said, well, you know, my brother John plays tight end. I've never played tight end before, but, yeah, I'd like to try it. And I ended up making the team, but I, it, you know, I kind of cheated. I trained all summer as a tight end with my brother and uh, got some good advice from him. And, you know, I just went and toughed it out, Brett. And I wanted to, I wanted to be the, you know, the first one from my hometown, <coughs> excuse me, to, you know, play in the NFL. And, uh, and I was lucky enough to do it and actually started the first game against Cincinnati that year in 1981. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's just all of a sudden, completely new position. And it's not like you're moving from guard to, to tight end or you're moving from one defensive position to the other. You're going from quarterback. I don't know. It may, maybe because I'm an NFL layman and I don't really know. Uh, it seems to me like it's a big deal. Uh, obviously, it wasn't a big deal to you. Well, it, it was a big deal. I was very proud of it. But the, the thing you got to remember, and, and you were, you had to be raised this way with two brothers, uh, or two brothers close in age to you is is that when you want something you got to go get it you can't you know you can't go out there and say I want to do this I want to do that and then you know you're out back drinking beer out of a keg with the friends and you know you had to miss a lot of parties if you were gonna if you were gonna make it and you were gonna be special and something different than anybody in your hometown you had a you couldn't make every party you had to say no so you know and just you had to suck it the hell up and do it. And so I did it at that point. And, you know, now at age 63, I try not to miss any parties. 
And uh, I throw a hell of a party when I put one on, too, as you will know. And so uh, it, it was just a, a very rewarding time in our lives, in my wife, Diane, and I's lives. And, uh, and uh, you know, you look back on it and you say, you know, I guess that was quite an accomplishment, 35 years in the National Football League. So You started in Seattle. You played there through 88. You'll come back there in a few years uh, to revisit the Seahawks. But um, – we both have something in common there too. We both played in the King Dope. Now, as a hitter, it was a. Uh, we did all right? You, did you like it? I, you know what? As a hitter, great place to hit. It was like I was playing a video game. Tough. It, it could be tough sometimes, uh, vision wise. A yeah. lot of you know, but overall, I mean, it was like a, a video game. It it just seemed like there were walls and angles everywhere. That turf was as fast as could be. Personally, for me, a good turf uh, playing the infield, I loved it because I went from there and I ended up going to Cincinnati where they had the artificial turf. It's just the game's a lot faster, but the hops are true, especially yeah. the good turf because you didn't have the seams. A seamless turf, it's it's coming at you twice as fast, but I knew I was going to get a true hop, and it was a step and a die versus the natural grass. I ended up loving both, but uh, other than, than my body and my knees, which I think in the long term, you know, that turf affected me. Um, taking that, the physicality aside, I prefer to play on turf. I think offensively it's an advantage. Um but that's different than playing football because I've never had to stand on the turf. You know, the turf was uh, we had the dirt cutouts. So I'm playing second base. I'm in the dirt all day. I'm not playing on that turf. I'm not diving. You know, once in a while, I'm going to skin my elbow when I dive for a ball outside the dirt. But football's different. There's no dirt. When you fall, you fall. And I don't know if I'd enjoy playing it, especially getting tackled, getting crushed on that hard ground. I don't think football-wise I would like it. How was it for you playing in the kingdom? Did you like it, or, or were you glad when you got outside of it? Well, I, you know, absolutely I was glad when I got outside of it, but the problem with me was of uh, the years I played, I also played in Minnesota in the Metrodome, and they had the same hard surface, as you know, that uh, – that the uh, kingdom had, which is that, you know, old fashioned asphalt with a piece of rubber and a piece of carpet on top. And, you know, my, my, uh, my ankles and my toes have taken a beating. And now, like I said, at age 63, I'm paying for it because my feet hurt and my feet hurt because they're arthritic. And I blame it on the, on the AstroTurf because I played so many years on that surface. Without a doubt, I, th I could see in football, you know, how about leaving the dome? How about leaving the dome? Always climate controlled. And now you got to go to a late season game in Pittsburgh, let's just say Green Bay. Is that a huge adjustment for some for a dome team to have to pick up? Do you see a, a big advantage for the opponent when they're used to playing in that cold weather all the time? You know, I do. And I just think it, like anything in sports, it's a mindset, you know, and if and if, uh, if some of the coaches I played for and including myself as a head coach, if you know, because we were in the Metrodome and that was uh, an indoor an indoor stadium, it, we would practice outside. Now, you might not take the whole day and go outside, but you would want to go out there and, and realize that, okay, you, you know, you're not going to end up in the hospital. It's cold, but it's cold for them too. 
And whether they're wearing T-shirts and you're wearing long sleeve shirts, don't let them fool you. They're cold. And you just, uh, it's a mindset. And if you can get it in your mind that, all right, I'm just going to go play through this and work my butt off and stay warm, it's okay. And, you know, when we went into Green Bay when I was a head coach and the Vikings don't win in certain cold weather games and it was under, I don't know, I'd have to check the game ball, under 10 degrees and we beat them in the playoffs in the cold weather game. And that was a mindset for my team. It was, hey, listen, this is cold for them too, not just us. Played for Chuck Knox in, in Seattle. After the 88 season, you go to the Redskins where you're going to play for Joe Gibbs. Uh, interesting, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in Jersey. And it was one of those, you know, peewee football, 130-pound team. We took a trip uh, to Washington. And – you had a you had a host family. You know, one of the the team you were playing, one of the kids, they would adopt you and you know for the trip and stay. And I ended up drawing Joe Gibbs. So I, I was staying with with Gibbs at his at his place when I was probably twelve or thirteen. I remember the morning because we had a game. He said he had to go off to Dallas. And uh that was my brief interaction with him. We went out and got absolutely pummeled by this team in Washington because we were a 130-pound team, and everybody on our team was under 130 pounds. They had different rules in Washington, so they they had to weigh in at the beginning of the season, and then they didn't have to weigh in again. So I had these kids that are 150, 160 pounds, and once again, playing the size thing. As a kid, Mike, I wasn't big. I mean, I was probably 4'11" you know, one Oh two. And, uh, anyway, that's my little Joe Gibbs and, and, story. And the other guys were shaving, right? And you're- oh, it was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> and, and I mean, we just got drug up and down that. that was, by the way, that's one of my last football games that I ever played, but, uh, played for, played for Gibbs in, in 89, uh, back to the Seahawks for a couple years in 90 and 91 want to talk a little bit about the, the city of Seattle. Obviously, it's, it's important to both of us. Uh, we both spent a lot of time uh, playing in that city. Uh, you played, the majority of your time was the 80s and the early 90s. Uh, I had the early 90s and then, and then the early 2000s. And that city was, was unbelievable to me uh, to this day. You know, when I go, I, I like to go back and visit once in a while. Uh, it's truly a great city. And, and you've lived there up till recently. Um, so you see the impact it has. You saw our, our teams in the early 2000s and when Safeco Field was rocking. You've seen the Seahawks, how they've evolved. And and I, when I come back to a Seahawks game, man, I, I go into that stadium and I just sit there and I go, this is how – in 2001 and 2002, 2003, that's how the now T-Mobile Park was uh, right across the way. If you win in Seattle, they will show up. You're, give me a snapshot of your time in Seattle and, and, and that city as a, as a sports community. I think the city's a, a top-notch sports town. I think they support the Sounders. They support the WNBA. They support now hockey. Of course, they still want the Sonics back. I don't know if they'll ever get them, but there's a whisper that there's... How'd they ever let them leave? I don't know what the heck went on. I think it came down to the the same reason that uh, Cleveland left Cleveland to go to Baltimore. I think it comes down to stadiums. And, and, you know, you can't get... Sometimes you can't get things done when you're dealing with some of these city councils, I guess, and dealing with some of these government bodies. And... I don't think they can get a stadium going for the Sonics, so they left. You know, uh, 
I still have a Sonic. I'm sitting here in my office looking at my shelf, and I have like a Seattle shelf. And of course, I got the Space Needle. I got the Seahawk, old fashioned Seahawk emblem, and I got an old Sonic's beer pint glass that I keep and I don't use. And uh, you know, so the Sonics were big back then. And and Jack Sigma, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, uh, that was big time back in those days. The uh, Seattle SuperSonics. Yeah, I I loved going to the games when I was when I was there playing in that city. Um, move on to the Vikings, 92, 93, 95, You end up playing till till you're thirty six years of age. You played for Dennis Green, who will be who will be in your future. Um, I want to get to the end when you started thinking about it. a lot of guys in sports in baseball. Uh, you know, pick your sport, NFL, whatever. Some of us have a plan. Some of us don't have a plan. For me, it was when I'm done playing and I just can't do it at a high level anymore. I want to go off in the sunset and uh, call it a day. Other guys are, are, are setting up what they're going to do next as they're nearing the end of their career. You know, looking back, I, I would have done things a little bit differently. I'm just getting back into the game a little bit later in life for me now. But for Mike Tice, you're, you're getting to – you know, you, you play there 92, 93, 95 is your last year. You immediately obviously have a really good relationship with the Vikings because you end up uh, signing on with them in 96. Was that something you, you thought about throughout your career that one day when I'm done, I want to be on the other side of the ball and be teaching this or, or did it just come up? All right. No, absolutely. It was something I actually, you know, worked on and uh, took notes on and asked questions on of, a lot of coaches that I came across and I knew that, you know, I was really a, a second tight end, if you will. I was never really the starter. So when I started, it was mostly with two tight ends or a play where they needed a bigger body in there. But uh, I was I was very fortunate to be like you. You rang off some of the names before, you know, Chuck Knox and and Joe Gibbs and Joe Bugle and Jim Hannafin, who are great offensive line coaches. Chuck Knox, who was a great offensive line coach in his career before he became a head coach. Shoot, even Jerry, going back to Jerry Claiborne, who's a kind of a college football legend back at the University of Maryland. I was, and, and like I said previous, George O'Leary, my high school head coach. I mean, he, you know, he had a tremendous coaching career. To be around those kind of guys, if you're willing to take notes and listen and be humble, and make sure that you you try to do it their way because they know better than you. Uh, you can become a, a solid player, carve a career out, and you certainly can become a coach if you can communicate. And uh, I hope to think that I can communicate with any age young athlete. Um, I do work at the uh, NFL Alumni Academy at the Hall of Fame each year. I volunteer five weeks, and I work with young players who are trying to get back in the league who have been released or young coaches, or diversity program. I work with female coaches. So I, I think the coaching is something I always want to do. The teaching is something I always want to do. And like my poor wife, Diane, who's been with me a very long time, over 40, 40 some years, um, I wake up in the morning coaching that poor gal. She gets tired of it once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting thing, too, here is 96, 95, after the 95 season, you retire. You, you go back with the Vikings in 96 as a tight end coach. 97 through 2001, you're, you're, you're 
in charge of the offensive line. But 95, you're a player. You're on that sidelines. You're in the you're in the grind. 96, you're in that same clubhouse with probably a lot of the same guys, a lot of your same teammates. Now you're coach Tice. Was that kind of surreal for you? It really was. And 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 you know, be honest with you, it was hard too. It was it was hard on a couple of players that go from, like you said, four weeks before or five weeks before, or even two weeks before having a beer with and hanging out to, you know, tell them to shut the F up in a meeting. And it's like, uh, wow. Uh, some of the guys accepted it. Some of the guys didn't accept it. It, it was, uh, it was really good though, that I had good players because uh, when you're a first time coach, I certainly wasn't a young coach. I was already in the league a long time, but when you're a first time coach, if you have good players, it makes you a better first time coach. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. <laughs> so, so that helped me out quite a, quite a bit. I'll be honest with you. Uh, 2001, you take over as interim interim head coach of the Vikings for the last game of the year. Uh, and then you start your tenure from 2002 to, to 05 with the Vikings. Now you're the, you're the top dog. You, obviously, this is what you've been working for. Um, how does your life change all of a sudden now you're the head coach? Well, the first thing is now everything's on your shoulders. So anything, uh, any mistakes that are made, no matter what they are, whether they're on or off the field, you have to deal with. And uh, certainly in my tenure, we had a number of things to deal with, both on and off the field. Uh, you have in your, you know, instead of having your group of players that you're in charge of and you make sure your players play at a high level each week, now you have your guys, and I'm mostly an offensive guy, the entire defense and special teams that you have to be accountable for. And those three groups have to play well. And if they don't play well, then you better figure out a way to get them to play well or it's on your shoulders. So that was the biggest thing. That was the extra burden. And, uh, you know, it's tough. Uh, It's tough sometimes. I think about it, too. If I were to manage, you know, big league baseball team, I I had so I was fortunate enough. I had a lot of great managers throughout my throughout my career. Uh, But I think, all right, if I were to do it, how would I do it? I still have my own beliefs and 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 druthers about things but i'd take a little bit from him you know maybe take a little lou Pinella here and a little bobby cox and a, and a little bruce bochi there and and combine them all into one did you did did anyone really shape mike tice or was it no this is the way i'm going to do it i've learned you know i'll take what i can take from chuck knox i'll take from gibbs what i could take green was in your life for a long time dennis green um or did you just, were you ready? Did you feel you were ready for that job and, and everything had, you know, leading up to that, all your experience uh, made it made it a smooth transition for you? No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Brett. I, I definitely uh, tried to emulate, because I was with him the longest, Chuck Knox in a lot of ways. You know, the toughness, the preparation, you know, leaving no stone unturned, you know, working hard, great work ethic. I already had great work ethic because I wasn't talented enough to play if I didn't work my ass off. So I had to work my ass off. So Denny Green, though, he was just such an influence on me offensively and and so much ahead of the game after working for Bill Walsh down in San Francisco. 
And Denny Green, the way he broke down defenses and the way he could come in a meeting and look at tape and take his finger and break down a, a coverage or break down how they're stopping the run, I learned uh, bucket loads from Denny Green, and he was a brilliant offensive mind. After 05, you're moving on. You go to Jacksonville. This was of interest to me. And I've never seen the headline. I've never seen a header. In baseball, it's not that way. Uh, your label is assistant head coach with Jacksonville. You do that in 06, 07, 09. Your assistant head coach is the, is the main, uh, your label. It is also you're, you're in charge of the tight end coach. Explain to me, what does that mean? When you get, is that just a little bit? All right, you're you're in charge. You're the tight end coach, but but because of what you you've done and your experience and your your status, we give you a little bit high, higher level of a of a tagline. Well, it was immediately after I was released by uh, uh, the Vikings uh, at the end of the season after beating Chicago in uh, and. Uh, 2005, I believe it was. Playoffs. Um, yeah, Jack Del, no, last game of the season. Jack Del Rio called me and said, what are you doing? I said, you know, I'm just going to take a deep breath. And he said, uh, you know, quit your pout and come down here. Let's talk. So, you know, I wasn't ready to put the grind in and be a position coach. So Jack asked me to come down, be assistant head coach, sit in on the offensive line meetings with Andy Heck, who was a teammate of mine his rookie year in Seattle. So we knew each other. He also had not had his own offensive line room yet. He's now the offensive line coach for the Kansas City Chiefs, so he obviously has had a brilliant career. But uh, I sat in Andy's room for the first couple of years, and uh, we talked after every meeting. We talked after every day, and uh, I just tried to help nurture him some along with his mentors because uh, I certainly was not his only mentor. And then – uh, I kind of got bored with that, and uh, we had a, 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 a good we had some good thing happen timing wise. The tight end coach went to the Dallas Cowboys. The tight end position was open. We were looking. We were in need of a tight end. So Jack said we're going to draft the tight end high, which ended up being Mercedes Lewis, who's still with the Packers. And uh, you want to coach tight ends and still be assistant head coach? And I was like, hell yeah! So that's what I did for a couple of years, and then. After that, you know, you're back in it. You, you're finished pouting after getting fired, and you and you say, "All right, I need to get back with the old line." And I got lucky that Lovey Smith had an offensive line coach job open in Chicago. Both my kids and my wife were in Minneapolis. My son was at Wisconsin. My daughter was at St. Thomas in in Minnesota. And what was fortunate for me is I, I got back to the Midwest and I was able to see my my family more. And uh, so that worked out well, and that was just Jack Del Rio allowing me to leave Jacksonville, leave my contract to go, you know, coach the offensive line again, which was my love and the thing that I love to do. I mean, it's ironic I'm saying that after we started out saying I was a quarterback, correct? <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is. Um, you know, it, it's it's so, you know, as much as the, the sports are different, they do parallel one another. Uh, we recently had Walt Weiss on the on the program, one of my favorite teammates, by the way, of all time. He ended up getting, getting into the game, coaching, uh, ended up 
the uh, manager of the Colorado Rockies for, I think, three or four years. Now he's back in Atlanta, won a World Series last year as the bench coach. And I asked him that question. You talked about you pouting for, for a little bit after getting, getting let go from that head coach position. I said, do you miss the managing, Walt? And was it tough that day when it came with, hey, your services aren't needed anymore? And he said, yeah. He said, there was a little bit of a period where I kind of, I kind of pouted around. He goes, but Booney, I'm sitting here in Atlanta right now it was unbelievable when in when in uh, when in the World Series as a coach, uh, and he said, as bench coach, I I kind of still get to manage, but when the shit hits the fan and it, the things don't go right, nobody asks me any questions. And he goes, and I'm going to leave the door open in the future. I may may get the opportunity to be a manager again. He said, but he he's really enjoyed his time in Atlanta. That's that's why the question was there for you, and and yet similar answers actually. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's not rewarding, as you know. Well, maybe you don't know. I, I know. Uh, it's not rewarding when you get fired because you feel like you haven't done your job. But, uh, you know, then, then when somebody picks you up again and you get your confidence back, you know, you just move forward. 2012, you're the offensive coordinator for the Bears. Uh, and then you get to 2014, you go to the Falcons, you're the offensive line coach again, 15 through 17, you go to Raider Nation, um, another iconic franchise, you know, Bears being the first kind of iconic franchise. Um, tell me a little bit about the Raiders. Is it really something different? Are you the villain over there in L.A.? Is it the Raiders way and and? I don't know. I, I've had a few guys on that have talked about, uh, yeah, it is kind of different when you when you go to uh, play for the Raiders. Well, you're not playing. You're coaching now. Yeah, you know, there's a mystique. And, uh, you know, the Al Davis and his teams back when I – certainly when I was playing against them in the 80s, we were in the same division, the same conference, the AFC West, because the Seahawks at that point were in the AFC West playing Kansas City, Denver, and the Raiders. So there's a mystique about, you know, the Raiders being, you know, big, bad and tough and and dirty. But, you know, they don't teach that. At least we didn't teach that when we were there. So I didn't see a lot of that. But certainly the history, like any, you know, like the Yankees or, or any franchise like that that has won championships, the history and the mystique, uh, you can't make up and you can't you can't sell that. That's just something that's created over time. 2018, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're quoted as saying, you're ready to move on because the players today don't want to be coached. Is that an accurate? Yeah, you quote? know, it's 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 like this is I, was, I by the way, I know what you're I know what you're talking about coming from a generation. You're a little bit older than me, but I but I I'm going to let you explain it. But I know exactly the premise where that came from. Uh well, Today is a diff. Today's different than it was twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Yeah, you know the thing. The thing is, as as uh, time went on and I got older and the players got younger, there was there was, uh, you know, it's it's you can't teach the old fashioned way. Uh, everything seems to be like a therapy session, and uh, it bothered me, and it was certainly not. Uh, with my group, because the offensive line group is used to being treated, you know, the worst. And uh, but there there was just, you know, some of that that uh, attitude 
that I did not like to be around that, you know, when you were corrected because the teacher was trying to make you a better player and that wasn't accepted with, uh, you know, open arms, uh, then, I, then I had a problem because then I felt like I couldn't do my job anymore. So I was ready to move on and just say to hell with it. It's definitely different. I mean, it's different in <laughs> in all the sports. I mean, it's definitely changing, and and it's not like when when uh, you were playing in the eighties and nineties. When I was playing in nineties and even early two thousands, it's a different game at all levels. Um, tell the guys out there in the Boom Podcast what you're up to now. I know you got the Mike Tyson Foundation. I'm coming out to your golf tournament a month a month uh, about a month from now. I played in it last year. Great event. And like I said, this this guy here, Mike Tice, he's, if I have something to do, I have an event in the future and Tice is available to MC. I'm calling you because you hold the room. You're outstanding. I could sit there and watch you. You know, as athletes, we go to a lot of these events Absolutely. and there's a, and there's always somebody that gets up on stage and they're going to give their, sh- you know, they're going to they've got it. They got to give their shtick and what's going on. But but you've you've kind of got a gift for it. I'm looking forward to just Tice's speech up on the stage. Yelling at people, calling people out. Uh, tell the tell the Boom Podcast what you're up to. All the events coming up. Well, uh, when when we retired from the Raiders, Diane and I, my wife, started a foundation. Uh, we wanted to be able to raise money for youth programs. We were big with the Boys and Girls Club uh, in Nevada, uh, where my friend lived in Northern Nevada, Minden, Nevada. We had a golf tournament there. We raised. We have raised a lot of money, help trying to help them build their own clubhouse, but. You know, there was more there. We had other charities that we were close to that we wanted to help out. So we started this foundation, Brett, and we uh, we had our event this past weekend in Minden, Nevada, at the Carson Valley Inn. We've raised just around $100,000 for the Boys and Girls Club, and uh, that's who we give the money to. In a month, like you said, the one you're coming up, the Celebrity Tournament, we raise money for two Boys and Girls Clubs that have eight clubs clubhouses underneath them. Uh, one of which is the Thurston County Boys and Girls Club, where last year, with the proceeds we gave them, we scholarshiped 80 homeless kids for the entire 2022 calendar year. We also, uh, at another Boys and Girls Club that's actually closer to our house, the Teen Center of North Mason County, we were able to scholarship all the families that attend and use the facilities at, at uh, North Mason because they had a brand new facility and they had 13 kids in there. It turned out that it was hard for the families to afford the monthly fee. So we scholarshiped all those families and we went to 48 kids in two weeks. So we're pretty fired up about the things we do. We give out winter coats to Operation Warm in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And last year we gave out 2,200 coats to the fire departments of the uh, Twin Cities. We scholarship. In fact, last night we gave out 6,000 scholarships to uh, two athletes. Uh, we prefer non-football athletes, and I'm not saying as a joke. That's what we prefer. Uh, 6,000 to uh, athletes at my high school in New York in the name of my father and, and mother, Lois and Jack Tice. So we try to touch a lot of different areas, a lot of different uh, a lot of different communities that have touched us in our careers, i.e. my hometown, i.e. Minneapolis, uh, i.e. Seattle. Uh, so we're excited. We have the event that you're coming to, and I want to put this out there in a podcast I have a wonderful new title sponsor, Parsian uh, Private Wealth Management, and they get to request uh, the uh, celebrity of their choice to play with because they're putting up the most money. Well, 
I want to say this to your fans. We have Anthony Munoz, a Hall of Famer, Steve Lodge, a Hall of Famer, Walter Jones, a Hall of Famer, the Rod Woodson, a Hall of Famer, and uh, and uh, John Randall, a Hall of Famer, and Parsi and Private Wealth this past weekend while I was up my tournament emailed me told me they want Brett Boone. So how about that one, Booney? That's what I'm talking about, Ticey. Yes, that pumps uh-huh. me up. That pumps me up. Tell them I'm ready to go. Oh, yeah. They're <laughs> fired up when I told them you were excited. So uh, <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it's really cool. We have a lot of companies behind us, a lot of people putting up a bunch of money. We're going to have a, a hell of a lot of fun. Certainly, I'm excited that we're not doing an autograph session because that was a drudgery. So we're just going to have a few parties and uh, we're going to have some great music. Uh, I'm bringing a band up from Chico, California that has helped me before with some of my events. Uh, we're going to just have a good time. We're going to raise a lot of money. We're going to have some, uh, as they say, shits and giggles. And we're going to make some new friends and we're going to do a lot of good for a lot of kids. Awesome. Uh all your experiences, coaching, play, and life. Uh, what life lessons you try to pass on to others when people ask Mike Tice for advice? I think the best thing that I could give people, because I'm certainly not a star, I'm certainly not a star athlete, is you got to work hard. You got to put the work in. And if you don't put the work in, don't go complaining that, oh, I didn't get this job, I didn't get this position. Well, yeah, because you went for the interview with a freaking hangover. So, you know, you got to put the work in. You gotta you gotta stay focused on the task at hand. You can't be thinking about other things when you have a task that you're supposed to accomplish. And uh, and and certainly and foremost, and you know this too, man. You can't let your team down. You can't let your teammates down, and you can't leave, you know let down the people that. And I'm not talking about just sports. I'm talking about business. I'm talking about your team at your your job. It could be your team at a Target store, and where you're a manager or you're in charge of some people, you got to make sure that everybody that is working with you or for you knows that you appreciate them. You appreciate what they're doing for the team. Very cool. Great advice. Mike Tice, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate coming on. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing you in a, in a few weeks. And uh, awesome, awesome message. What we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast. And you must be pretty special, Tice, because the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, wants to ask a question. Dan? I got a quick question for you, Mr. Tice. Just before you leave, you are a Chicago guy or you were here coaching, and I got a question. I am in Chicago, and the question is this. What is it about offense in Chicago that is so difficult? Why is it so hard for these guys to really go on all cylinders here? Well, you know, everything needs to be clicking on on all cylinders, but you have to be good up front. And I've seen some inconsistent line play over the last number of years uh, that has bothered the offense some. And uh, really, to me, offensively, it all starts up front. If you look at, you know, the years we were rolling under Denny Green, the years we actually were rolling under me and Scott Lanahan, you know, we had a lot of offensive linemen that made it to the Pro Bowl. We had We had good players. And so... I think that's where it all starts, and until they get that offensive line ironed out, uh, there's going to be problems. And what was it like to work with Jay Cutler? He's always kind of been a an interesting uh, person around this town. Well, Jay and I had a, a very good relationship, and uh, Jay and I actually spoke a few months ago. And, uh, you know, Jay 
that had all the throws and he could make all the throws. We just never could put it all together. Mike Tice, thank you so much for coming on the Moon Podcast. Sir. We appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. Anytime, you guys. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe, never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29 I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.